I want to title this Born to be Wild. So the message is called here. We're, we're, we're going to start a, a series, and I don't know how long it's going to go, but it may go for quite some time, uh, but uh, on, on discipleship. How many old rockers do we have out here who knew the band Steppenwolf? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Magic carpet ride. Get your motor running. Head out on the highway looking for adventure. And whatever comes our way. Hey, they, they were good. Well, you'll see why I entitled this Born to be Wild here a little bit later on. But the first thing I want to do is address the problem that I'm going to be addressing here throughout this series. And it, it really is this. And we, we, we've done a review of the church the last four weeks, and it's, it's been real positive. There's a lot of great things happening here. We, we've got a long way to go. We have a whole lot we need to accomplish, but, but we're going in the right direction. And it's been very positive and upbeat and things like that. But if I was to give a report on sort of the state of the national church, the, the church in America, nationally speaking, it would not be nearly so positive. In fact, it would be positively negative, I'm afraid. Um, I read a book this week called Growing Disciples by George Barna. He's this guy who does all this sociological research on the religious beliefs of, and practices and moral beliefs and practices of Americans. And he gave some statistics that were very disturbing. In fact, they were really depressing. That's why I want to share them with you because I hate to be depressed alone. Uh, look at this. Over 80% of all Americans identify themselves as, in some sense, Christian. Now, you may think, well, that's really good. But really, it's, it doesn't mean much of anything because if you ask any other further questions about what they believe and, and things of that sort, you'll find out that the title has no impact in their life whatsoever. What they basically mean by Christian is, I think I'm a nice person, and what we call nice people in America is Christian. But over 80% identify themselves as Christian. Now, about 25% of all Americans I, will claim to have some personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, or identify Him as Lord and Savior, or identify themselves as being born from above or born again. All right? and now, now, that is, I take to be the sort of minimal definition for a, 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 a minimal biblical definition for what it is to be a, a Christian. And so I'm going to zero in on that group that profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, evangelical, Christian, or whatever you want to call them. They have some sort of understanding of, of a personal relationship with the Lord. Now, that already tells you that about 65% of the people who identify themselves as Christian don't know uh, that that means that he's to be Savior and Lord of your life. But let's talk about the 25% that do. Of that 25%, 18% of them say that their commitment to Christ is the most important thing in their life. Which means that 82% name something else as the most important thing in their life. 1% said yes they, they, in the affirmative that the purpose of life, the main purpose of life, was to become a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Now, what that tells you is that discipleship, wanting to be all that you can be for the Lord, is simply a low priority, to say the least, in the church in America. 44% of those, 25%, who uh, say they were born again, 44% believe uh, absolute, that there exist moral absolutes, uh, moral absolute truths. Now, I'm really hoping that the, the question was worded poorly and that something, they misunderstood the question because this, really, uh, this is really scary. 56% of all the people who have a relationship with Christ don't believe in any moral absolutes. What does that tell you? 55% of those uh, who say Christ is their Lord and Savior 
say the Bible is the primary influence in their thinking about moral and religious truth, but of course that means that there's 45% that have something else as the primary influence in their thinking and in their, in their life. 12% of those interviewed, uh, uh, 12% of the believers uh, said they read the Bible in the last week. Over 95% of them own a Bible. In fact, over 90% own three or more Bibles, but 12% read it in the week uh, that they were interviewed. 40% attended church in the week that they were interviewed. 75% attended it in the last year. 75% of those interviewed uh, who uh, are in this category of born-again Christians gave to a, the church or a charity in the last year. But the average giving was $500 a person. Well, around $500 a person, which is just over 1% of their annual income. See, this is not real good news. This is, this is, uh, uh, this is frankly, catastrophic. It, it, it's abysmal. It's, it's terrible. It's depressing. Uh, the question I want to ask is why? Why is that? I mean, I could get up here and start harping and standing on the podium and saying we ought not to be this way, should not be this way, better not be this way, hoping that Woodland Hills Church isn't this way, but, but uh, I don't know if that would really do too much. What I want to ask here this morning is this question, uh, what is the fundamental reason for this? Uh, and there's a lot of reasons, and I'm going to be talking about some of these reasons as the series goes on, but I want to get to the heart of the reason. What is the core reason why it is that American Christians have this aversion to being a disciple of Christ? We'll believe, we'll even attend church a little bit, but to be a totally sold-out, surrendered disciple of Jesus Christ, uh, we just have an aversion towards it. Now, why is that? Why is it that sanctification, if we're going to use that word, or discipleship, if we're going to use that word, or holiness, if we're going to use that word, tend to be negative words to us? Uh, for, for most American Christians, they don't represent good news. It's not something that gets you excited. You get pumped up about it. For most, it's kind of like, you know, if I announce that we're going to have a, a series on sanctification or discipleship, it's kind of like, oh, shucks, shoot, man, we were really having a good time, and now we've got to deal with this stuff. Why is that? The answer, I believe, most fundamentally is this. We have, to a large degree, bought a lie. We've bought a lie. And the lie is that sanctification, holiness... Discipleship, the lie is that those are not positive things. Now, the Bible says that Satan is the god of this age, 2 Corinthians 4 4. It also says that Satan is a liar. He's a liar. Uh, he's been a liar from the beginning, John 8 44 says. Now, now, take a look at this. John chapter 10, verse 10 says that the thief, the thief, that's the devil, he comes only to steal, to kill, and destroy. Those are three things. That's the satanic trinity. The three things he wants to do to kill, steal, and destroy. In contrast to that, Jesus said, I've come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. Now, the, the, the devil's a liar, so do you think he's going to show up and say, hey, you guys, guess what? I, I want to kill, I want to steal, I want to destroy you. No. What he's going to say is, I want to give you life, not kill. I want to give you know, things to you. I don't want to steal from you. I want to build you up. I don't want to destroy you. He is a liar. And when you believe the lie, you end up being brought under captivity to that lie. Here's the nature of the lie, Genesis chapter 3. This is the, the lie the enemy told in the beginning, and it's the lie. Every, everything he's ever said since then is a version of this. He says to the woman, this is Eve, you will not die. Did God say you will die? No, no, no. God's a liar. I'm not the liar here. God's a liar. I'm the truth teller. God's lying. You're not, you're not going to die. Food for crying out loud. For God knows that when you eat of it, when you eat of this tree, here's why, he's, this is why He gave you the false warning. When you eat of it, He knows that your eyes will be opened 
And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, God is threatened by you. He's in competition with you. He doesn't want you to actualize your full potentiality. He doesn't want you to exercise your freedom. He doesn't want you to be all that you can be. He's threatened by you. And so that's why He forbid the tree. But if you really want to live, you want to be passionate, you want to really grab everything you can get out of life, well, then you just got to run away from that God and listen to me as I'm coming to... I want to build you up, Eve. I'm your best fan. You know, I'm a fan of humanity. And, and I want to just you know, really see you become all that you can be. So you've got to run from that God. Here's the lie. You paint God out to be an ogre, a stodgy, uh, you know, insecure deity... And you show humans uh, that they are, you get humans to believe that they exist in competition with God. And uh, that what they, for them to become all they can be, they've got to run away from that God. And, and since we're made, we desire passion, we desire life, that's what we're going to do if that's the lie that we believe. The thing the enemy always does is he takes the good and he makes it look evil. And he takes the evil and he makes it look good. He takes the true and he makes it look false. And he takes the false and he makes it look true. He takes his killing and he makes it look like he's giving life. And he he takes the one who's giving life and it makes it look like he's killing us. He takes his stealing and makes it look like he's giving stuff to us and takes God who's giving stuff to us and makes it look like he's stealing stuff from us. He takes his destruction. His goal is to destroy us, but he makes it look like he's going to build us up. And he takes the one who wants to build us up and he makes it look like he's destroying us. Here's kind of what he does is he makes a relationship with God into a religious thing. And he makes religion a bad thing. And he takes his agenda, which is to disobey God, go your own way, and he makes that into a good thing. And since we're all created and we desire to live, we desire passion, we desire excitement, we all want life, if we believe the lie, then we're going to see our relationship with God as being a negative thing and our, our life outside of God as being the positive thing. So there's always going to be a pull towards us and words like holiness or sanctification or discipleship are going to seem negative. Following God, that's bad. Going, doing your own thing, that's good. Following God, that's, that's boring. Doing your own thing, that's exciting. Following God, that's always somber. It's religious. Doing your own thing, well, that's where you can really have fun and get crazy about stuff. That's when you can be yourself. Following God is full of hypocrisy. Doing your own thing is really authentic. Following God is always mediocre. Staying in the middle of the road, you know, never being too radical. Doing your own thing, now you can be radical. Now you can be passionate. Now you can really live. Following God is restrictive, it's oppressive, it's, it just boxes you in. But doing your own thing, that's when you're free and now you can really live. And see, if you get people to buy that lie, then even when they believe in God and even when they believe in Jesus Christ, they're going to keep one foot out here because they don't want to lose all of their life. Maybe they've got to go ahead and they want to be saved and, 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 and they're you know, willing to be boxed in a little bit. But over here, they want to keep a little bit of their passion. They want to keep a little of their uniqueness. They don't want to be totally stifled. It's a lie. It's a lie that permeates our entire culture. It's ingenious. Convince people that following God is about religion, which is not. Convince people that religion is, is uh, stifling and restrictive, which it usually is. And you get people who don't want to follow God. And true life is to be found in doing your own thing, running in the opposite direction. The lie permeates our culture. When was the last time you saw real re- religious stuff portrayed in a positive light in Hollywood? When was the last time you ever saw a serious believer, a serious Christian believer, portrayed, and I'm not, except for Touched by an Angel, okay? But even there, it's kind of questionable. But when was the last time you really saw in Hollywood or on TV Christians portrayed in a good light? It's almost always in a negative light. You know, uh, Chocolat. Did anyone see that movie? It kind of got some good stuff in it. 
But, you know, the, the Christians are the sexually repressed, uptight ones who are just always, you know, negative about everything. And, and you know, there's just the right way to do it. And you've got to stay right here. And you just can't, can't go outside the lines kind of thing. And this new age gal who's doing magic and stuff, oh, she's the good guy. You know, she, she's the one who makes everyone happy. Uh, you know, so in the end, they get rid of Easter and, and do a new Equinox thing at the end of the movie. And it's a good movie. I mean, it just sucks you in. It's like, oh, hooray. But you find that you're cheering against the church, you know. Oh, yeah, that's right. Why is that? It's so consistent. Uh, the movie uh, Pleasantville, or, or was that what it's called, Pleasantville? Pleasantville? A classic example. You know, these people who are in this artificial world come to life, and they, and they come to life like, you know, in the movie they, they, they take on color, everyone else is in black and white. Well, who, are, who comes in color? It's those who do their own thing, go their own way, eat of the apple. The, the movie is explicit about this. If you eat of that forbidden apple that's in color, well, then you get to be in color. And you go out to the lake and have sex. That's how you get in color. But these religious people are in black and white, and they're always against all this, and they want to just keep things orderly and, and mediocre and boring and middle of the road and all of that kind of stuff. It's consistent. So I constantly get this idea that, oh, yeah, religion's about restrictiveness and ugh. No wonder people think that. Church lady, Saturday Night Live. <laughs> Classic example. What are y'all doing watching Saturday Night Live for? <laughs> I caught you. I was just testing. No, it's, you know, it's, it, there's this lady who's just kind of got her undies in a bundle and, and uh, well, what, what, what do you think of that? Could it be Satan? And it's God or Satan? What is it? And, and she's just like, mm, you want to hit her. You know? And that's part of the, the, the humor of the whole thing. But see, that, that's, that's the stereotype in our culture. And the sad thing is that, to a large degree, the church buys that. Yeah, I guess we're religious, so I guess that this is how we've got to be. We've just got to be the people who are always you know, saying, telling others what we're against and all that kind of stuff. And we buy into the lie that it's restrictive. I grew up really with this conception. My view of God was of the church lady, basically, but in a male form. But, you know... All the religious people I knew were like the church lady. I went to Catholic school, and I love Catholics. I'm not trying to bash Catholic schools here, but my experience wasn't entirely positive. Um, it, it uh, you know, I, I, I was always in trouble, and I, I always had this idea that I, I have two choices. I either can go God's way or Satan's way, and Satan's way is a lot of fun. You know, uh, I can either be a good boy or a bad boy, and being a good boy, if I'm a good boy, I will die of boredom. If I'm a bad boy, I'll die because they beat the tar out of me. But if I'm going to die either way, at least I'll have fun. You know, and, and that was kind of the choice you had to make. So when Sister Mary Joseph decided to leave the classroom in third grade, and there's a tack board up there, I, I just I couldn't resist it. Who could resist it? I mean, what would it look like if uh, she came back and sat on the tack? It's an irresistible urge. And so I had to do it. You know, and, and uh, she did. And it was a, it was a, la- it was a roar. I, to this day, I'll tell you it was worth it. But of course... <laughs> You talk about the church lady, <laughs> Mr. Boyd, and you know immediately she knows who did it. That's the thing. It's like wasn't wasn't me, wasn't me. But see that that's that's kind of the the, the 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 options that you're given. You can either live fully, live passionately, live vibrantly, which means you go do your own thing, go your own way, make your own decisions, and, and just kind of you know forget God. And if you're going to have God at all, well then maybe it's a once a week thing where your toes on the inside. But basically, why would you want to get totally restricted and squashed and chained to religious beliefs? Or you can just do your own thing. And that's kind of the options. Now what blows me away is that Jesus, who is the one, the Bible says, who reveals what is true, He is the way, He is the truth, He is the life. 
He blows apart that presupposition. He exposes the lie of the enemy. That's why he's called the truth. The word truth in Greek means to uncover, to disclose. Jesus uncovers what God is really like. And the thing that really intrigues me and excites me is the one thing he did the best was take religious leaders off. He, the, the church ladies of his day, he just had a way of getting under their skin. Uh, they're always mad at him. You know, uh, first of all, he hung out with the wrong crowd. You know, he, he hung out with the wild crowd. Uh, the, the non-religious crowd. He hung out with tax collectors of all things. And women in the first century, a Jewish rabbi, what are people going to say? Think of the whispers that are going through a town as you have these uh, women, some of whom don't have a very good reputation, following you. Uh, this isn't the right crowd for a religious rabbi to hang out with. And he hangs out with these social outcasts, the lepers of the day, the Samaritans and things of that sort. Talks to a Samaritan woman there and, and in, in John chapter 4. This is not what you do if you're a good rabbi, not in the first century. You're raising a lot of eyebrows, Jesus. You're breaking a lot of rules here. You know, we've got a right way. There's a right way to do things and a wrong way to do things, and you are not doing them the right way. And then he gets in the face of the Pharisees and questions their authority and challenges their authority and sometimes absolutely insults their authority. He tells some radical stories about uh, you know, the Good Samaritan, for example. The Samaritans are the lowest of the low. There's a guy in the street and a Levite goes by and a Pharisee goes by and a scribe goes by and they don't help the guy, but a Samaritan helps the guy. This is not going to endear him to the Levites and the scribes and the Pharisees. He's just kind of starting to tick them off. Uh, he, he says fairly non-complimentary things like, You're a road of vipers. <laughs> you're a bunch of serpents. You're a bunch of snakes. You're whitewashed you know, graves, that's what you are. Your bones on the inside. Not exactly going to win him a popularity contest with the religious people of his day. But there he was, just upsetting the whole thing. It doesn't go along with their theology and their propriety and their church lady sort of mentality. He breaks rules that you're not supposed to break. He plucks corn on the Sabbath because Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath, he says. He heals a person on the Sabbath, a blind man on the Sabbath, a lady who's got scoliosis on the Sabbath. And man, does that get the Pharisees ticked off? First of all, because he's getting a crowd because of the healing, but then he broke a rule. The Sabbath, we've got rules about this, you see. And he just wasn't a good rule walker, if you will. He wasn't going along with their system. The way he talks about God, it was, was, was just not in line with the church lady mentality that they had in the first century. God is like this, uh, this father of a prodigal son who wastes his inheritance but then comes back in, in repentance and, 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 the, and the father runs towards the son and embraces the son and forgives the son. That's what God is like. And the Pharisees are going, what are you talking about? And God is like this woman who lost a precious coin and sweeps the whole house and, you know, just searches and searches till she finds the coin. And when she finds the coin, she throws this incredible celebration. That's what God is like when anyone turns towards Him. And God's like this shepherd who goes out looking for that lost sheep and finally finds the lost sheep and throws the party. That's what God is like for anyone who turns towards Him. And the Pharisees are going, what are you talking about? You, you've got a bunch of, of these requirements that you've got to meet first. You're talking about a, a wild God, Jesus. You're talking about an untamed God. Your God is not fitting into the religious box like He's supposed to. But the craziest thing that Jesus did and the thing that blew all their socks off and blew their hair back was, uh, was, when, was, was some of the claims He made. He made claims like this. If you see Me, you see the Father. If you see me, you see the Father. Why then do you ask, show us the Father? Jesus said that. He says, I've come down that all may honor the Son even as they honor the Father. 
And see, what he was doing in essence there is saying this. I'm the presence of God here on earth. I've, I've come down from heaven uh, in order to uh, be among you. And this is not fitting into the, the religious lady theology of the first century. You see, they thought Jesus was crazy and a blasphemer for thinking this way. Um, Jesus, look at God is, uh, God is up there and we're down here and never the twain shall meet. God is too transcendent. God is too holy. We are lowly beings. We are maggots. We are worms. We are dust of the earth. God is transcendent, holy, and all that kind of stuff. And, and uh, to think that God would become a human being, what are you, nuts? What kind of God are you talking about? What kind of untamed, wild, passionate deity are you talking about? God doesn't do that kind of thing. And if God did become a human, He wouldn't become the kind of human that you are. He wouldn't hang around with these women of ill repute and reach out to these lepers and social outcasts. He'd be catering to us. We're the religious people. We got God in the box. He's right here. We know who God is. We know His ways. Don't you go telling us what is right. Don't you go telling us what is wrong. We've got it locked down, nailed down tight. And if God did become a human being, He wouldn't become the kind of human being you are. You, you, you've got a wild, some kind of wild, untamed deity going on here. And if God did become a human being, which He wouldn't, but if He did, He wouldn't go to the cross. He wouldn't die for sinners. What kind of wacko theology is that? He wouldn't save sinners by grace. What kind of wacko theology is that? He wouldn't have mercy on people who don't deserve it. What kind of wacko theology is that? And the thing is this. They're exactly right. They're absolutely right, aren't they? If Jesus is for real, if Jesus is telling the truth, then folks... God is anything but a church lady. Amen? If Jesus is telling the truth, God is not some stodgy accountant up in heaven who is just keeping a record of, of uh, the good deeds and the bad deeds. If Jesus is telling the truth, then God is a God that we could never have predicted. A God we could never have anticipated. What kind of supreme being loves little people like us, not just little people, but little rebellious people like us, to the point of being willing to become one of them? What kind of God would set aside the glory of heaven and become a human being? What kind of God would, would set aside the glory of heaven and become a, a human being in a, in a dirty, gr- gringy manger? What kind of God would become a human being and fellowship with the sinners that Jesus fellowshiped with? What kind of God would become a human being and die on the cross, a God-forsaken uh, death, taking on Himself the judgment of the world and the sin of the world and the horror of the world? Why? So that we sinners could uh, be in... Uh, eternal relationship with Him. What kind of God does that? A wild God. An untamed God. This God is not safe, amen? This God does not stay inside the box. You can't lock Him into some corner and think that you've got the last word on Him. This is a God who, frankly, if I may say so, is out of control with His love. His passion doesn't know a limit. He's a geyser when it comes to love. He's exploding with this kind of love, amen? This is a God who just is not at all like a church lady kind of thing up there. No, this is a God who's just... Uh, uh, unthinkable, incomprehensible, unsurpassable passion and love towards the people who don't deserve it. Just a wild, untamed God, if you will. I don't know how else to express it. And no wonder it blows apart the whole system of those who get their life from religion rather than a relationship with Him. Now here's what I want us to see. The Bible says that we are in God's image. We are in the image of the one who became a human being and did everything I just said He did. We're in the image of the one who blows that church lady system apart. To be in the image of God means this. We're made to express God. We're made, uh, we're made to be God lookalikes. We are made to live in the kind of outrageous passion and outrageous living and outrageous sacrifice that God himself exemplifies. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. 
And there is down deep inside of us, maybe it's buried under a whole lot of decades of boredom, perhaps, or maybe it's buried under a whole lot of woundedness, and we'll talk about this kind of stuff next week. Maybe it's buried, but deep down, deep, deep down, there is a part of you isn't there that resonates with this. That's one of the reasons why we, 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 even if it conflicts with our mind and it doesn't fit our religious expectations, there's something about the outrageous message of the cross that rings true to us. We want that. We desire that. We hunger for that. We thirst for that. And there's a part of you deep, deep down. Some, for some of us, it's on the surface. For others of us, of us it's buried. But it, a, a part of you that wants to be wild, if I can put it that way, wants to be, to, to be full, wants to be passionate, wants to live life to the extreme, craves excitement. That's why we buy the lie. It's because we want what the devil's offering us, that passion. But see, the devil will tell us that the way to live fully, the way to live passionately, the way to live with excitement is to go against God. He's been telling that lie from the beginning. But what God would have us to know is this. He's the one who invented passion, amen? He's the one who invented excitement. He's the one who invented life. He's the source of life. He's the source of joy. He's the source of peace. And what he wants us to know is that he's not in competition with our fullness, with, our, with, with being all we can be. He's not a God who's out there just to put bounds around us. He's a God who wants us to flower in his image. He wants us to live in passion. He wants us to live in excitement. He wants us to push the envelope. He wants us to tap into that radical side. And the way we do it is by having a relationship with him. Amen? You, amen. You want life. Amen. You want life, it's found in Jesus Christ. You want excitement. You want, to, you want to live rebel? Well, rebel against the mediocrity of the world and follow the rebel himself. His name is Jesus Christ. You want to fi- find life that is passionate and full and free. You find it in the person of Jesus Christ by surrendering to him. And all the stuff we're going to talk about with regard to discipleship and, and being disciplined and, and the practices of the Christian life, those are not chains, like the devil said. Those are not restrictive things. They are there to set us free. Amen? They are there to set us free. All discipleship, dying to self, taking up the cross, and all of that. It's all about dying to pseudo-joy to find real joy. Dying to pseudo-pleasure to find real pleasure. Dying to pseudo-peace to find real peace. Dying to the pseudo-passion of the world and finding real passion in the Lord Jesus Christ. Dying to pseudo-forms of getting life and finding real life in the person of Jesus Christ. Praise God. Don't buy the lie of the enemy that says that all the good stuff is out there. The good stuff is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You know, what we need to do is just swim upstream in the culture on this one and reclaim wildness uh, for Jesus Christ. Take that, all of that desire to be passionate and, and outrageous and, and living fully and, and, and having some excitement in life. That's not bad. That's good. God made it. But we need to bring that back into the church. Don't buy the church lady lie. No, we need to bring that. It's kind of like this. It's kind of like this. Here's another variation of the lie the enemy always tells. The enemy tells you, and, and this is all over the place in our culture, that the best sex is outside of marriage. Now, I know there's probably a rule that says that you're not supposed to talk about sex in church. It's probably not proper, especially if you're Baptist, but all the more reason to do it. <laughs> and I don't want anyone else mailing in another name. Uh, I've had four of them now, Renegade Baptist. We're not going to name our church that. I, I mentioned it last week, and oh, there's a name. First Renegade Baptist. Yeah, what do you think of that? You see, but he, he, here, here's the deal. The enemy lies and says that the best sex is found outside of marriage. Now, 
if they, if this is partly why, this is a large reason why there's so many affairs going on. People buy the lie. And there's something in most people, at least, that wants, that craves sexual expression. That's kind of a normal human thing. And so if you buy the lie that it's better outside of marriage than inside of marriage, there's always going to be a part of you that wants to do it outside of marriage, before marriage or outside of marriage, fornication or adultery. But you know, what's interesting is that every study ever done, not just by Christians, but by secular people as well, has shown that the best sex is in marriage. They do it more frequently. They have more fun doing it. There's more freedom doing it that way. Why? Because God invented sex and He says this is the way to do it. And God's way is the best way. Amen. We need to just you know, take that, that, that sort of wild impulse that you have in sexuality. And couples, married couples, take that into marriage. Take that creativity into the marriage, and you won't have the, the, the temptation to go outside the marriage with it. You see, it, it, the problem is not that urge. The problem is, is buying the lie that directs the urge in the wrong way. The best sex is found in marriage. And the lies in the culture is uh, almost every scene that you see that is suggesting sex uh, and Hollywood on TV, it, it's, it's, it's 99, I read this, 99% of it is between couples that aren't married. You know, and, and that's, sorry folks, we, we need to expose the lie. In just the same way, we need, to take, we need to take that wild impulse that we have in all areas. There's a part of us that wants to live. We want to be free. We want to be, you know, just uh, original. We want to be unique. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. We need to take it back in to the church. Take it back into Christ and proclaim out loud and as straightforward as we can say and live it as fully as we can that in Jesus Christ there's life, there's passion. Steppenwolf was largely right when it said we we're born to be wild. But they got the lyrics all wrong. Uh, you know, a good song, good song and good music is from God, but you know what? They got the lyrics wrong. So I, I want to take that back for the Lord. Now, this is really going to be bad. No, this, okay, this is really going to be bad, but, but uh, get, get the point of it. Uh, this, is how the song, uh, this is how the song should have go- uh, gone, and you can sing it with me. One, two, three, four.
Calvary Baptist and I did it. I told you it was going to be bad. <laughs> now, if that offended you, hang on for three minutes and it will get worse. Because, see, I, 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 here's a little testimony. When I, was, when I was a kid, I told you about my schooling. I, I, it's hard to believe, but there's a part of me that just had trouble walking this straight and narrow. And, and uh, I, I was a little hyper, okay? It's hard to believe, but I was young. And, see, I... I I was at home with a stepmother who, when she'd get angry, would get abusive. And, and then I'd go to, to the school, and uh, when I'd act out, the nuns would, they believed in corporeal punishment, they would, they would give these goody-two-shoe girls that I learned to hate uh, this, this family Bible, and they, they, she'd put them behind me. And if I ever I acted out, flicked a booger, threw a spit water or anything, whap on the head, I'd get it. And, and uh, see, I just got the message very early that this wild energy, this, 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 uh, what I thought was creativity, is just not a good thing. Now, what I was doing, I grant was bad, but it became about me. And so I grew up with this idea that, that who I am at the core of my being is, is, is not a good thing. And that what it means to follow God is to repress all the energy, all the passion, all the excitement, all the daringness, the adventuresomeness, and all of that, and, uh, and, and stuff it. And I couldn't do that. But what I learned later on was that God is the one who made all that. And He made me the way I am. And God likes all sorts of personalities. He makes all different sorts of personalities. And some are, light, some are loud and some are quiet. But He does like the loud too. You know, and, and God is the inventor of passion. And God's amen, the inventor of excitement. And I've learned that you know, God likes soft worship, but He also likes rowdy worship. And God is the inventor of music, and God is the inventor of, of rhythm, and God is the inventor of energy, and He wants that now to be taken back and used towards Him. St. Irenaeus in the second century said, The glory of God is the human being fully alive. Fully alive, fully awake, taking all your energy, all your mind, all your body, all your strength, and living it to the fullest, to the glory of God. Now, one of the things I learned to do early on was uh, to channel my energy through drumming. I, I just found that it, it was the one appropriate, semi-appropriate way, though even that tended to tick people off because it was so loud. But I, I found that I could just channel, you know, uh, who I was in, 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 in drumming. And uh, what I've learned also in becoming a mature Christian is that drums are God's favorite instrument. Absolutely. And so, so I've done this before. Uh, once before, I want to do it again. Uh, I, I want to do a poem for you. and I, I don't play anymore. I, I don't practice much anymore. But I still enjoy doing it because there's energy involved. And so I want to do a poem. Well, let's call this uh, Reclaiming the Wild Side. And I want to dedicate this to Sister Mary Joseph who sat on the tack. And um, uh, I, I want you to see this as, as sort of a metaphor. It's just a metaphor uh, for a living. It's a metaphor for passion. It's not about the expertise of it. It's just about the energy of it. And so you, you do it to the glory of God. Amen.
just had it all wrong. They just didn't know what to do with it. That's all. It's about Him. It's about passion. Live in the light and the glory and the power of the Almighty God. Amen. You're not in competition with God. God wants to take who you are and all your uniqueness and all your passion. And He wants to just flower as you offer it up to Him. Is there a doctor in the house? You know what? I want to close with this. Would you close your eyes, all believers, and pray? And I wonder, is there anybody here who wants life? Are you hungry for life? Thirsty for life? Maybe you're bored stiff with existence. Boredom's always been my worst enemy, too. And you know what? God didn't make your life to be boring. He wants you to bring it in on the, on the kingdom. Know the one who's the author of life itself. The Bible says the way to do that is to believe in your heart and to confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's that simple. So is there anybody here who wants to do that here this morning? Nothing fancy. Just raise your hand, and I'll pray with you from up here. This is how we all come to the Lord. Would you raise your hand if you want to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior here this morning? Raise your hand. You need His forgiveness. You know that you haven't been living for Him. You want to turn from that. Over there, amen. Over there, amen. In the back, several hands. Praise the Lord. Just raise your hand. You need that life. You were made for this. Up here, lady, wonderful. Praise God. Over there, young man. Young lady, praise God. I, this is, you're made for Jesus Christ. He wants to give you life back there. All over the auditorium, praise God. Up here, several people are raising their hands. The Lord, you're the lost coin. You're the lost sheep. You're the prodigal son. He's rejoicing over there, gentlemen. Wonderful, wonderful. Surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Start that exciting walk. No, no, that dance with him that lasts throughout eternity. I want us all to pray uh, with these folks who raised their hands. If you raised your hand, or maybe you didn't, and another one in the back, um, uh, and up here, wonderful. Um, pray this from the depths of your heart. Mean these words. You don't have to feel anything. It's not about feeling. It's about commitment. You're surrendering your life to Jesus Christ right here and right now. So repeat after me, all of us. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that you are the Lord God King, Creator of all things. And I confess that I am a sinner in need of Your grace. But I believe that You sent Jesus to die for my sin. And so I ask You, Lord, to forgive me, cleanse me, and make me whole. And I ask You, Lord, to live in me and give me Your life. And give me your passion and help me live for God.
the rest of my life. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. In Jesus' name. Welcome to the kingdom. Amen. Welcome to the kingdom. Amen. All the angels in heaven are rejoicing. Amen. Wonderful. Praise God. It delights the heart of God. It delights the heart of God. They're giving each other high fives.